Welcome back to the Leo Weekly Podcast. I'm Sid Bishop. We're here for 99 Bottles, a deep dive into one beer from one local brewery. This week, we're here with Amelia Pillow, head uh, pub brewer from Against the Grain Brewery and Smokehouse. Today, we're going to talk about uh, Super American Premium Lager, their summer lager, which is on tap and the shelf right now. How are you doing? Pretty good. How are you? I'm excellent. Uh, so we'll kick it off. We're going to get straight into the beer on this. So how would you describe the super American premium lager to someone who has never tried it? Um, well, uh, the thing about a beer is that it's supposed to be a beer for the people. Um, and basically, uh, it is by no means trying to be an industrial American lager. It's trying to be something a little bit more. Um, while also being extremely crisp and very, very accessible. So just, you know, the beer that you can uh, have with your beer connoisseur, uh, uptight brother-in-law, and also your granddad, and everybody's going to like it. Awesome. And by just to clarify, by commercial, we, we mean just like domestics and yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just yeah. The, big, the big industrial guys, you know. That's kind of what I figured. Yeah. They're operating at a little bigger scale than the rest of us, I think. It's very true. <clears throat> yeah. Um. So actually, kind of to that point, I have some questions in here about ingredients. Because it's a lager, which is a very common style of beer, mm-hmm. do you ever run into competition or any any problems getting the, the material, the ingredients that you need because of these other places? Not at all. So uh, the, the designation of lager has to do with the yeast that we use, um, okay. and that's by no means in short supply. Um, for the most part, in the states these days the things that you run into um, being a little bit more um, like short supply are hops Um, this beer uh, uses some very premium hops but uh, none of them are the ones that are like very high uh, highly competed for gotcha Um, so uh, all really high quality ingredients pilsen malt um, you know some uh some Calypso and uh, Hallertal Blanc, which are uh, like German uh, aroma hops. But um, yeah, nothing that we can't get easily. But like, so by German aroma hops, are those things that are like you have to get from Germany or are they just like a variety that originally came from Germany, but that we could grow here or whatever? So theoretically, you can always grow hops in a different country, but oftentimes what happens is it's just like uh, wine grapes, the terroir of where they're grown um, will influence the way the hop ends up tasting. So the hops that we actually use in this are grown in Germany um, and we just have connections with hop suppliers. There's basically any hop growing house is also like a, a contractor that will take in a bunch of hops from a bunch of different places. So we basically just get hops from Germany through people that we buy hops from in the States. Y'all got people. That's yeah, we got saying. people. We got That's a guy. Nice. Um, so one of the things that I admire about this beer is that it's got a low ABV. Mm-hmm. So for craft beers, that's not always the case, often not the case. And by craft, I just mean anything that's not commercial. Uh, tends to skew anything that's above, you know, or six six percent or higher. In my experience, so so I guess the question is, was it intentional to make it low ABV, or is that just kind of what a lager is and does, anyways? So. A lager is basically any beer fermented with lager yeast. However, like when we think of lager in the States, yeah, it is a low ABV, like light in color, light in flavor beer. Um, Craft beer, I think like in its inception in this country was to like that the kind of drive was to give people alternatives to what was already here, which was low ABV, light 
like lagers. Um, so I think a lot of people think that craft beer automatically translates to, you know, like an Imperial Stout right. or a double IPA, which is another thing. Um, right. But uh, <laughs> the reality also is, is that like having been in the industry for about 12 years now, like I've had so many barley wines and like, you know, Belgian triples and all of these things that like, while they're really tasty and while they're not something that I could have bought, like back in 2002, when I started drinking craft beer, it's not necessarily what I want to have two or three of when I'm out with my friends. Right. So a lot of people are now trying to produce more of these beers that are basically just more accessible to more people. Right. And also like, you know, you can have one or two of those like really nice, big, very, very complex, intense, rich flavored beers. And then you can just have a couple of beers that are just like easy drinking. Right. You know? And not going to, like, knock you on your ass and make you feel like garbage the next day. Well, you don't feel like you have to do your homework to drink this or anything like that. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, like, so they're often called session beers, which means that you can, like, drink a few in a session and right. then, like, still, like, drive your car home, which right. is always a good thing. Um, or, like, lawnmower beers because, like, you're not going to cut your toes lawn- off. I love calling them lawnmower <laughs> beers. Well, I, I call them lawnmower beers because they're perfect to drink after you cut your grass. Exactly. Ideal. I think that you should just have a little cup holder on your lawnmower. And you can drink it while you know your I like where your head's at on this. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to see what I can do at home. Um, so this is a general question, but it's going to get into this a little bit more. Mm-hmm. What makes a beer crisp? And specifically, because I've had a lot of beers, and uh, variety-wise, I mean, mm-hmm. um, and not, they're not always crisp. Yeah. You know, sometimes they're kind of muted up front. Um, so I don't know for one, I don't know what makes a beer crisp to start with, but in specific, how do you make, how do you apply what those standards to this beer? Um, so typically when we think of crisp, it's like a balancing of the bitterness from hops and the residual sweetness left over after fermentation of the malt. So malt contributes both the sugars that, uh, ferment into alcohol, but they also contribute, um, body and sweetness from the sugars that can't be fermented by the yeast. So, um, in that case, in this specific beer, uh, lager yeast tend to basically kind of consume, uh, more sugars and produce fewer byproducts in fer- fermentation. Okay. Um, so if you drink an ale that is the same malt bill, like basically the same beer, but just fermented with a different yeast. Yeah. There'd be more residual flavor that were produced by the yeast. Okay. Um, even though it might have the same alcohol content because it might have attenuated down to the same level. But by attenuation, I mean just like how much sugar is consumed and yeah. what the end sugar content is. So for this beer, we basically make the recipe so that there's a very low... Um, uh, terminal gravity, which is the sugar content at the end. Yeah. Um, it's balanced out by a very like moderate amount of hops. So it's not like a lot of residual bitterness. It's just enough to balance out that residual sugar. And then the yeast themselves don't produce a lot of other um, flavor compounds. So you end up with something that while it has a lot of aroma and a lot of flavor up front, the finish of it is very, very clean and crisp because of all those things. On your side, could th- that all... That all makes a lot of sense to me. Uh-huh. Um, and I've brewed a handful of times just home stuff. So from my perspective, I understand that, you know, yeast can also, you know, if you put more yeast in it, it could make it more sugary. It can make it higher gravity, et cetera. That, more malt? Yeah, yeah. 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 So I might be saying it wrong. But like, so I guess what I'm trying to ask poorly is... <laughs> 
the uh, how did you how did you learn that? I guess like was it like did, is this part of a recipe? Because you you were talking about uh, lower terminal gravity. I mm-hmm. really like that expression. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I don't know. Is that like is there math to that? Like, okay, we have this much stuff, or is it part of the recipe, Most or certainly. is it experience? There's there's definitely. Um, it's definitely formulaic and some of it's experience based upon like the equipment that you have and different strains of yeast that you use. But the main thing is, is that, um, the bulk of this recipe is Pilsner malt. Okay. Pilsner malt has, uh, a very, it's very fermentable. Okay. So you're going to inevitably end up with fewer sugars if you just use that malt almost exclusively in the, as the base of any beer. Um, that's also why it's light in color and very light in flavor because Pilsner malt is basically like a very mild, like highly fermentable base for any beer. Um, if you add more malts that are like kilned, um, they're less fermentable. So you end up with more body and more residual sweetness. So every recipe that we build, we intend to basically have a uh, original gravity and then an anticipated terminal gravity. Okay. And that's how we know how alcoholic it's going to be and also how much body is going to be in the beer. Is that just, does that just establish a range? So if you're like, okay, it's 4.5 to five mm-hmm. or something, you know that that's our target somewhere in there. When yes. we get done, you can measure it and you know it's what. Exactly. Gotcha. Exactly. And, and all of the people who create these malts for us will tell us effectively like how fermentable this malt is. So oh, we'll know that, that if we add this many pounds, there's this much potential sugar and this percentage of it is fermentable. Okay. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Yeah. And you actually answered one of my questions. I was going to say, because it seems like such a light-bodied beer, mm-hmm. but it's also rich. I mean, not like overwhelming in its flavor or mm-hmm. anything, but just, uh, that doesn't mean mean it to sound bad or anything, but just like, it, it's, it's just... It's subtle maybe, but yeah, also has no. a good mid-body. No, that's, that's what I mean. <laughs> um, I just mean that like, it's it's got a very, it's very robust, I think. Mm-hmm. And how do you, it seems like such a, a careful balance to get something that would otherwise, you know, like when I think of a domestic, I'm thinking of a lighter beer. Yeah. This is that. Yeah. Um, but it's also More complex, like, maybe? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, You're so... doing better at this thing. <laughs> I feel like I'm leading you is what I'm doing. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, Abir propaganda. Here we go. Um, so basically, the malt bill that we use is not just that Pilsner malt. Um, there are some other malts that are very subtle in their flavors. They're like Munich malts. Um, and I believe this has a little bit of oats as well. Just like a, these small subtleties just add a, a little bit of complexity and a little bit of like mid-body sweetness, maybe some breadiness. Same thing with the hops that we use. Whereas industrial beers are, they're, they're brewed by like chemists. They're down to yeah. like the chemical compounds in it. Um, but they kind of have antiquated flavor profiles. They use a lot of rice. So they're not necessarily intended to be very complex right they're just intended to be like chemically on point every time right um not to say that we don't try to hold ourselves to specific standards but we just have a kind of broader palette it's right it's all still very mild and subtle and maybe more nuanced flavors um but since we kind of are layering them a little deeper even though they're very very like you know bright and and like not intense. 
Um, since it's more of those compounds kind of layered on top of one another, it definitely gives a perception of depth, I, I guess is the best way to say it. I mean, I can taste it for sure. It is uh, sublime was the word I was trying to look for. <laughs> it really is though, because there's That's quite a compliment. There's a lot going on, but at the same, I mean, it's like almost has a Zen quality, you know, a lot, but not a lot. Yeah. You know, it's great. Yeah. Less is more sometimes. Yeah, for sure. It is. <laughs> it's a, it's a minimalist beer. I like yeah. that. Um, so this is, uh, shifting just a little bit, but do you, uh, do you, where do you brew this? Like, do you brew it at the bat stadium location? I know there are multiple locations at this point for, so basically we, um, brew all of our, uh, core brands, both at the production facility and at the pub facility. So given that our, um, distribution needs are varying from time to time, it may be at this point, pretty much we never have anything extra at the production facility. So to make sure that we still have all the brands that everyone's familiar with, because for a while we didn't brew any of the core brands at the pub, but we kept on selling so many cans because people wanted what they were familiar with in the market. So we started brewing them at the pub with the intention of like, if there ever was any surplus at the production facility, we just put that into stopgap. But at this point, um, we're pretty much always brewing our own batches of the same recipe at the different facilities. Okay. Uh, given that, there are like very subtle nuanced differences between our um, kind of the efficiencies of our equipment. Sure. So if you were to taste them side by side, they might be like a smidge indifferent, but we're using... Right. All the same ingredients, all the same practices and fermentation schedules and all of that. So theoretically, like for the most part, the average consumer wouldn't be able to taste the difference. It's pretty much exactly the same beer at both places. So one of the reasons that I asked, though, is that I know that lagers have very strict requirements on how they're stored when they're uh, fermenting. Their fermentation schedules, yeah. Um, So they have to be at a certain temperature and everything. and. Mm -hmm. So I can imagine that a facility that's dedicated just for that should be no problem. It's got that with design in mind. But I've been to the the Bats Stadium <laughs> space, and I know that it's very compact and a very unique use of space. Are there any mm-hmm. logistical hurdles to making it? Um, we basically just don't have the ability to... So. I guess to think about it this way, the production facility does brew ales as well. They brew everything else as well, but they're able to maybe brew like a single batch here or there of ales, which turn over really fast Okay. and brew more double batches of lagers because they do take more time. But if you're doing it at twice the scale, right. you're not taking up as much space. I pretty much only have five fermenters that are single batch, 15 barrel fermenters every time. So um, it's just kind of a matter of trying to, time things appropriately um that's that's the really nice thing about having two facilities because before we had that if i had a weird weekend where i sold like five and a half to seven barrels of lager i just wasn't going to have lager again until it was done lagering so um there is a little bit of like backup from them on that front but um for the most part at the pub we just do fewer lagers i guess they're they're the main like Obviously, we're not producing anything for distribution as far as loggers go. I sure. guess that's the easiest way to think about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, they are backing me up if I run low on my logger at the pub. Okay. And I'm not producing any of the loggers out for production because they have so much more uh, capacity there. That's what I would think. Yeah. It's just a tight space. I mean, for any anyone listening that hasn't been there, the... 
the brew tanks are on the second and third floor, I believe. The correct? fermentation tanks are on yeah, the second yeah. floor, and then the brew house is yeah, on the yeah. third, yeah. Right. So, you know, I know that there's like a, I've seen a system where you have to get your grain bags and everything up there. <laughs> and that also means that you have to be able to transport the liquid downstairs and, it's a process. Um, it is. And I just didn't know if loggers presented a unique challenge in there. But it sounds like, I mean. The, the, they only present the same challenge that uh, all brewing in a pub does, which is like, you know, maybe I don't know that there's a farm equipment machine show in town and I sell like so much more of a beer that I anticipated and then I have to like move my whole schedule around to not run out of it. That's pretty much it. The nice thing about production brewing is that for the most part, you have all of your orders come in in an easy pace. You know, it's never like you left for the weekend and someone came and picked up all of your beer. Right. (laughs) Surprise, you're out. Exactly. I don't know. As a consumer, I kind of like that. It's a surprise of like, well, what is here today? Well, I mean, the nice thing about brewing overall is that it's never monotonous. Yeah, It's a different challenge almost every day. And um, it is a a job that keeps you on your toes. So overall in both facilities, I feel like that that is an overall truth. (laughs) Right on. So this is something that is, I've asked a couple of people this, but it's sticks with me. Um, well, let's start here, actually. Yep. Is there anything specifically American about this beer? Um, I feel like it's uh, overall uh, sense of pride Okay. and uh, patriotism. No, okay. I mean, I feel like the main <laughs> American thing about it is that it's, it's just really delicious, and uh, it's down to have a good time. <laughs> well, I do marketing professionally, so I'm say, I would say... This is, this oh, is the packaging. No, no, Jeez. the packaging is fantastic. <laughs> I would say America has such a vast territory that this is a beer for everybody. There you go. See? Um, but You're actually, better at that than I am. <laughs> I, I hope so. <laughs> You're better at beer than me by far. Um, <laughs> well, I would hope so too. <laughs> um, so to that point, actually, one of the things that I've always found interesting, and I, I think I've asked it on this podcast before, is about lagers as an American tradition. Mm-hmm. Because in, to my mind, they, I mean, in order to do it properly, you, you kind of need refrigeration or you can only do it at certain times of the year mm-hmm. or maybe you have access to a cave. Yeah. But I, I, do you have any insight or ideas as to like how it became such an American tradition? Our tradition definitely was brought over by German immigrants. Um, some of the, from what I understand, some maybe of it's the... it's colder there. Yeah. Um, some of the older breweries in the country kind of got started in, um, like, uh, upstate New York, Pennsylvania, um, and uh, there was the capacity. I know that Yingling still has actually carved out caves where they lagered their beers yeah. to start. Miller um, does. Yeah. So, uh, basically, those traditions that were the German traditions and even the yeast, uh, actual yeast cultures they brought over. Um, and started in uh, the States. I don't know why the British brewing tradition didn't take off as much, if only because, I don't know, we were a British colony and we rebelled against them, so we didn't want their traditions to persist. That's a good point. Screw you guys. (laughs) Exactly. We don't want your beers. Um, Um, But yeah, that's that's the the understanding that I have. And then obviously um, when Prohibition happened, we kind of just stunted our brewing tradition entirely. Absolutely. So I know that the brewing tradition... Our legal brewing tradition. Exactly. 
I know that um, in Kentucky, our brewing tradition was also uh, German-based, and um, there were, in addition to a lot of brew houses in, like, basically what is effectively now Nulu, there were a lot of ice houses, too, and they were both co-owned by German immigrants. I think there's one right down the street from us here um, on Main Street. Yeah. Um, So I've asked this before about the difference between lagers, uh, Kolsch's, and uh, Pilsner's. Mm -hmm. To me, they all have a very comparable... They, they taste comparable. Yes. Um, what do you think about that? So, I mean, I understand generally the differences are in the technique and mm-hmm. the ingredients that you mm-hmm. use. But to you, just as a person that's with it, around it all the time, that has made one of each, mm-hmm. probably multiple takes of each type, uh, do you, can you, if I were to blind taste test you, would you be able, be able to say, like, this is a Pilsner? This is a Kolsch. This is a this is a lager. Um, if we're talking about like a lager and in in just being kind of like an overreaching term of like American yes. lagers, okay. Um, I feel like more likely than not, I would be able to tell the difference between that a German Pilsner and a German Kolsch. Um, American Kolsch probably as well. Um, the flavor profile for. American, like, lagers generally for me is, like, the malt profile is is a little duller. Um, They're usually rushed, so you can kind of tell there's, like, a little bit of a residual kind of fermentation byproducty kind of flavor profile. Yeah. Um, German Pilsners are super crisp, super, super, super crisp in a way that has nothing to do with uh, hot bitterness. And I feel like American lagers kind of compensate for that with hot bitterness. So they go for the crispness as like a bittering thing and not just like a fermentation thing. Okay. Um, And German Kolsch is just super soft and has this really touch of fruitiness because it is an ale yeast. So it is while cold fermenting, still going to throw more of a kind of fruity ester quality. Okay. Um, so it's also not as like earthy, hoppy, crisp. It's its own kind of like soft fruitiness. That's an interesting. I'll have to think about that the next time I, I should do just at a blind, go to, you know, go somewhere or get, get one of each and do a comparison. Yeah. We should do that after this, Scott. <laughs> um, so, you know, you had kind of brought this up earlier. Um, are beer enthusiasts gravitating more towards classic styles? I'm, as a as somebody that likes beer and writes about beer, mm-hmm. it certainly seems to be that that's the case. Uh, m- more of a um, an interest in, in beers that take more of a minimalist approach in some ways. Uh, Scott and I were actually talking about this before you came. Um, I think that the more you drink beer, um, the more you start to appreciate the, the nuance of subtlety and the, like, in my mind, kind of like the truer craft of what it takes to make a, uh, very, very minimalistic beer. Well, um, it's also just a matter of like, if you like to drink a lot of beer, you can't drink that much of a heavily flavored high alcohol beer all the time. Like right. while it might be what you like over time, you kind of just get sick of them. Yeah. Um, so I think that the more you get into beer, the more you end up kind of drifting towards these like more delicate 
um, beers because it also is is always a good indicator of someone's ability to make a good beer because there's not very much to hide behind when you get to a beer like this right like it it will show its defects and if you can make a beer like this this well then i think that it is a true kind of indication of the level of your craft so i feel like the more you get into craft the more you kind of want to be able to taste something very mild and very light and very delicious because you can throw all of the chocolate and butterscotch and papaya oh, juice and haze and lactose <laughs> beer that you want to and it's gonna hide any mistake you might have made and it's also gonna be high abv and all the newbies to the table are gonna be like give me some of that right and all right. the old school folks are gonna ask for a kolsch that's the way i kind of feel about it that <laughs> seems to be the case yeah i mean and also like i i uh, studied english in college and one of the things that came up was poetry mm-hmm. and uh, not to go deep on this tangent but what i liked about it was the concision of language you only have so much space to do a thing yeah and i'm talking about classic like shakespeare and stuff mm-hmm. you know you, you if if a rule is broken there's a reason why it's broken so having that constraint is uh it is a show of craftsmanship to me yeah. because it gives you an opportunity to push against those and make it your own and that actually kind of leads to my very last question how do you put your personal stamp on something that is such just like a fundamental American classic. Like when I think of American beers, I'm thinking of a lager more mm-hmm. than anything else. Um, I think the main thing is to just, like I said earlier, keep it that same kind of super fleeting, delicious flavor, but just add depth to it. You know, like this beer does not hang on your palate. It is not flabby there's no gestures wasted but there still is more depth than to the average american like industrially produced beer yeah well i love this um and that was our last question but you did bring one other beer so if you want to tell us real quick what that is this is just one of my little babies it's about to be off the pub it's a everlasting gobhopper um This A-beer that we have in these Super American cans is definitely um, our baby this year. But uh, I had to just bring along one of those stupid big beers that I was just talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's so pretty, though. Look at that. Um, This is... A double IPA um, made with lots of those mosaics and cascades and centennials and, oh, geez, Hallertal Blancs, all those guys. It smells delicious. It's meant to smell and taste like candy. All right. Well, uh, on that note, I would say cheers. Cheers. Thank you. My pleasure.